My guest this week has worked in all facets of the media. A writer for the National Lampoon magazine, he worked at Late Night with David Letterman for most of the 1980s. In the 1990s, he worked on classic TV series such as Cheers and In Living Color, as well as working for Norman Lear's Tandem Productions. A move to VH1 encouraged him to create innovative programming, which he later did for the Travel Channel and Twitter. I'm glad to welcome Fred Graver. Hey. Hey. Thank you, Ian. No yeah, problem. Classic TV. That's right. You can see you can see my work on um yeah, Nick at night. <laughs> yeah. The checks still keep coming in from in living color. It's crazy. That show never is always on the air somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where, but yeah. And Cheers is always still on the air. Cheers is always on the air too. Yeah, so it, it's nice. Every once in a while, um, you get a, a nice tiny little check that just reminds you that you work there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So when you the first question I always ask when you were a young person um what did you watch on television did you watch a lot of comedy shows yeah 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 um so my trick was uh my my parents tried very hard to to uh it's like that merle haggard song mama tried right um they 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 confined me to 30 minutes of tv a day and the way i got around it and i'm dating myself here is i had my hand on the channel changer and so I hadn't settled on any show. So therefore, technically, I wasn't watching. I hadn't like gone back to the couch to sit down. So I could stay there for a very long time, as long as I was still flipping around. Um, the one show that, and, and I, I know this from other comedy writers as well, that was enormously influential was the Dick Van Dyke show, which even when I was watching it, was, it was already in reruns, right? But But that notion that there's somebody who went to an office where they wrote for television and they wrote jokes and they had a life and a house <laughs> and a family like and um you know some of us were lucky enough to, to meet dick van dyke over the years right and and the real lucky for me was meeting carl weiner and, and thanking him for this but but I remember when I was at Letterman, I had a postcard that showed that kind of classic entrance of Dick Van Dyke into his living room. And there's Rosemary and Maurice Amsterdam and, and, and uh, Mary Tyler Moore kind of waiting for him. Right, it's right before he's going to trip over the ottoman. And I was, I, I had it over my typewriter. Yeah, I'm really good myself now. Um, and one day I looked at it and literally, now at this point, I'm in my 20s and I go, Oh shit, that's a set. <laughs> he didn't actually have a house. <laughs> and it just, it just, I had just created this world around that guy. Um, and it just had a grip on me. So, so that I would say, you know, I, and obviously you watch cartoons and you watch everything else and you watch, um, you know, the sitcoms and Batman and Get Smart. Um, was was hugely like holy crap! Look at that! Like it's, there's a joke every line, you know. Um, uh, so all of that stuff was 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 a big deal to me coming up, right? And then and then the, the, the next kind of phase was 
um, the kind of, you know, MTM shows, Americana More studio shows, which again, you had Newhart, you had Americana More, you had like this stuff that was so taxi, stuff that was so well written. Um, and then, yeah, and, and then, uh, yeah, and then I was lucky enough, you know, you mentioned Norman, but like, I get to, to, you know, Norman kind of plucked me out of, out of, uh, uh, late night and, and I went to work for him and, and met all of these guys who had like worked on new show of shows, right. Or had, like, and so like all of a sudden I'm talking to these people who just like created television, right. Um, so all that stuff, you know, you soak it up like a sponge. I mean, that was a very long answer to your question, but yeah. So it was like living my favorite year. Uh-huh. But my favorite year is a show that, you know, so I met my wife at Letterman. She was head of the talent department for years. Um, we watched my favorite year once a year at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell Norman Steinberg I have him coming up. Please do. Yeah. And I know his, this is the tip of small world. I know his, his, his niece, Karen Minsky. <laughs> um, yeah. So there. So you went to Notre Dame. Yeah. And what did you major in? So I had a double major in English and American studies. Yeah. Um, and uh, what I really majored in was uh, the radio station and writing for the newspaper <laughs> and editing the newspaper. When you got out of college, what was your first job? Um, so I was, uh, I was, so first thing, I was an enormous disappointment to my parents who really wanted me to go to law school. And, uh, uh, but I was like, no, damn it. I'm going to move to New York and, you know, be a writer. Um, and, uh, my, my first job, I, 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 I could type, um, a hundred words a minute when I get my, my father made me take typing, uh, one summer in, uh, in summer school when I was in high school. And I could type, yeah, so I worked in temp jobs and things like that, and I knew how to copy edit. And uh, I met some people at the National Lampoon, and uh, um, two writers who were on the Harvard Lampoon, uh, Mike, Mike Reese and Al Jean, had been working at the National Lampoon. And, and Mike tells this story really, really well. Um, uh, they're working one day, and they get a phone call from uh, LA, Hollywood, and, and it says, um, hey, would you like to come and work on a movie called Airplane? <laughs> and so they literally left what they've been working on in the typewriter and walked out. And uh, I got a call from uh, this guy, Jerry Sussman, and I know you just talked to Sean Kelly, so you've heard this whole, a little bit, you've heard the other side of this socket. So anyway, they really needed somebody who could copy edit. As you might imagine, a lot of the National Lampoon writers didn't care much for spelling and punctuation. Um, and at the same time, they needed somebody who understood um, uh, sometimes the misspelling and the changes in punctuation were intentional. So I started copy editing and then I started pitching stuff and I started writing for them. And that was the real, that was the real break. And I met my, my, Good, good friend uh, and and writing partner for a while, Kevin Curran, there, uh, and we became really good friends. And then the two of us 
uh, the, the lampoon fired everybody one day. And then uh, we ended up a few months, a couple of months later at the, at the um, at late night. Right. And late 83, early 84, there was a mass exodus of the original Letterman writing staff. Yeah. Lauren hired them for something called the new show. Right. <laughs> and uh, the new show was going to be basically SNL in prime time, but it was going to be like more experimental and more, you know, not as topical. And, and so Jack Handy went, Andy Breckman went, George Meyer went, um, uh, uh, Max and Max Cross and Tom Gamble went. Um, and for a long time, Dave did not talk to Lauren Michaels um, because he was mad. But thank God for the new show. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know, I that that resulted in Kevin and I getting a lot of You asked me, you, know, you asked me about. There's a couple of things that are kind of like, you know, what is what what was the nature of that staff, right? I, I'm getting ahead of you, but you, 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 you before we turned on the, the mic, right. you asked me about viewer mail, and what I was starting to say was that you cannot talk about that early letterman without talking about Mel Marco. Right. right, and Meryl was his girlfriend and writing partner, and uh, the, the person he kind of trusted the most and bounced ideas off of, and everything else. Um, and and it was Meryl and Dave together who kind of figured out who are we going to bring in and who are we going to hire, and and how does this what is this and and what does this place feel like, you know what is what is it and and. Um, you know, Merrill had a lot of interest in kind of, uh, uh, it, was, it was back in the day when you could have video art, right? You could have Nam June Pike or Wellman, or no, what's his name? William Wegman, the guy with the dogs? William Wegman. William Wegman did all of these really early mm -hmm. video projects, um, which I remember seeing when I, was a, when I was in high school, like the Art Institute in Chicago, and it's been like, oh, this is great. I remember one time he did one. Uh, so it was him. I don't know. I won't go there. But it was him. You know, you'd go back and, and when when I went in, when Kevin and I went in to do our interview, before we went in, I had spent a couple of days looking at Ernie Kovacs tapes at the Museum of Broadcasting. And, you know, started talking with Merrill right away about like, oh, wait a minute. You know, he did this, he did that, early Steve Allen did this. You know, and, and that was a common ground, uh, you know, and that was that's what they were looking for. They were looking for people who understood in, in some ways, not only that this was a TV show, but there was another part of it that understood, here's this flat, here's this screen that is in people's living rooms that you can fuck with. And you can fuck with them in their heads. You know, I mean, you, Best, one of the best examples would be Andy Cohen or Andy Randy Cohen's um, uh, revolving show, degree, 360 degree show, right? Which is like, by the way, people were calling. This was I mean, in the days before Twitter and everything else. People were calling because they were getting nauseous watching it. Um, which there, there's a success point. <laughs> there's a metric. Anyway, yeah. So that's kind of how we all ended up there. For example, the top ten list. Would each writer have to um, submit for each? Well, the way time? that that worked, um, there the first thing that would happen is in the morning, 
people would hand uh, Steve O'Donnell, the head writer, suggestions for top 10 lists. And a lot of times it was obvious, you know, it, because there's something huge in the news and it was just it was a great way to do a funny take on it. Uh, Dave and Steve would pick it late in the morning, early, right around noon. Um, and then you'd go into your office and you'd write about 15 or 20 of them. Um, and so, which, which that meant you had 150 to 200 of them coming in. Steve would go through them and pick maybe 20 or 25, read them to Dave. Um, typically, there would only be six to seven or eight. And so there would be a meeting around four to like come up with a few more, which is also because like once you heard what the eight or seven or eight were that had been chosen, it kind of engendered, you know, there would be like more thinking about it. Uh, and there'd be grumbling. I already sent 15 in, but <laughs> you go back and, and then there's a, uh, there was a bit of a science to ordering the list. Right. So again, because you know it's a screen. Um, ten and nine have to be really funny. Uh, eight, seven, and eight and seven can be okay. Six needs to be funny because this is in the classic days. Uh, the screen's going to turn over, so you need a, a laugh to carry that over. Five can be okay. Four, three, two. Yeah, four. Yeah, issue four, three. Okay. Two has to be really funny. And then one is, is maybe the weakest of all of them. You just throw it away because there's a big laugh on two and call plays and you're out. And that's kind of the ordering of the top 10 days. It's, a, it's an exercise in user interface design, right? <laughs> yeah, that was my bar mitzvah present was a VCR because they were expensive back then. So I could tape Letterman, yeah. so I could tape Letterman every night. Yep. Yep, you're why we made the, the, the morning show. Because we would get letters from people saying, oh, you're on too late. I take the show and I watch it in the morning. Right. Yeah, I would tape it. No, I'd watch it when I got home from school. Do my, yeah. Do my homework to it. And I have this weird memory. So I would be able to study with Dave on. And then when I would take my tests, when I would, the question would come to something and I, my mind would go to what Dave was talking about when I read it when I was studying. And that's how I got through school. Interesting. <laughs> it worked. Right, I'll, I'll remember conversations you had with Paul to this day. Yeah. What were some of your favorite bits? Oh, it's, um... Yeah, I was about to say the most cliched thing. Oh, it's so hard to pick them out. Um, uh, anytime uh, Chris Elliott was going to do something, and the reason is, is that um, Chris and Dave, you knew at some point one or the other was going to go off script. And that was always exciting. Um, that was always really, really fun. I did a lot of um, remotes with Dave where we kind of went out with the camera and, and it was easy to do the first few years because people, again, you're on too late, I never watch you. People didn't recognize him. Um, so they figured it was some NBC personality showing up with the camera crew and we could get away with a lot of stuff. And it was, that, that was fabulous. That was really, really fun doing those. Um, and, uh, but then, but then we got to the point where 
he'd get out of the van and people would start yelling at him. And it was like, that's all over. We can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, eventually they had evolved into like um, Rupert G, right? Which is like, okay, I don't need to leave the desk. I can send, or I don't need to leave the car. I can send somebody in to do this for me. That's kind of how that evolved. Yeah. Were you there when they did the episode where they called the payphones across the street and that person became the guest on the show? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. My, that's my all-time favorite Dave episode. It's just Yeah, there's a payphone. There's uh, calling the woman across the street whose name I forget Oh, Meg. Meg. Simon Schuster. Yeah, Meg. Um, there was a guy named um, Arnie Barnes in Vegas that we met. So we did a remote in Vegas. Uh, when we were doing shows in Vegas, we were walking around a casino. I forget the bit because ultimately Arnie came up and started talking to us. And he was really, hold on a second, I dropped him in. He was really, as they, you know, say, a colorful character. He's crazy. And um, uh, um, we ended up spending the day with him. I think we called it like Dave and the Drifter, right? And, and it was like, and it was really fun. It was really crazy because he was really nuts. And Dave was, it, it, it was in no way, what was great about it was in no way it was taking advantage of this guy. Like he came up to us, he wanted to talk, he wanted to be part of it. And Dave kind of very, it was very funny and very respectful. And like, great, you hungry? Let's go eat something. Like, let's go hang out. Where do you live? You know, what do you do here? Then Arnie, um, uh, we tried to get Arnie a job, like a, a job job. Um, it didn't work out. And then <laughs> there was a couple of times uh, we arranged for him to call the show during the show. Um, and then it started to get weird. I think he called once or twice and then it got really weird. So that was that. <laughs> you were there when they did the anniversary show on the airplane? Yes. How was that experience? Um, great. It was just dumb. <laughs> You know, it's like whenever you watch an episode, like for example, you know, you watch an episode of like Modern Family, right? And and the episode is we're going to Hawaii, and they have an episode in Hawaii. What that means is that somewhere between the airline, uh, the Four Seasons Resort, and Disney ABC, they have figured out how to give the staff a week in Hawaii, right? Which is and this was a weekend in Miami. So we did the show in the, in the airplane. Um, it, it worked out perfectly well. There's a lot of, you know, what I, what I would call bulletproofing. There was a lot of stuff we knew was funny that we would shoot there to guard against what if this is just bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was that, yeah. Did you talk to any of the guests? Um, from time to time, I would. Uh, they, they, they really, they really, um, they didn't discourage people from talking to the guests. But when you, a lot of the way that we prepared and handled the guests came out of. Dave's own experience of being a guest on Carson. 
And if you watch Dave on Carson ever, um, it's masterful. He would spend weeks getting ready to be on, on Carson. And he would have three tight stories, knew what he was going to do. That's, and so by the time he got out there, like he was fucking ready, right? And he wanted his guests to be the same way. So again, my wife is head of the talent department and the segment producers worked with her and the people who you know, prepared the guests. By the time people got to the show, um, they were focused, they were in the zone and, and there wasn't a lot of fucking around, right? Um, there's a couple of people who I idolize, like Pete Townsend, um, that I kind of went up and said hello to. And then I remember saying, I remember saying to him, um, I was really looking forward to this. I have to tell you, my brain has gone completely blank. I can't, rem I, I could, on a normal day, I could recite the track list of every one of your albums. I can't remember anything but Tommy right now. <laughs> and he was very nice about it. He goes, "Oh, you know, I, I met my idols at the, you know, but but um, but uh, for the most part, no. I mean, and there were certain people like Bob Costas who just came and showed up, and he was great to talk to. Um, Steve Martin came in, and anytime he came in, he came like a day early. Uh, same, same with Jay Jay Leno in the early days would come in and say, you know, you got a bit for me, you got something for me to do, you know." So there were some people who came in and they wanted to do, do work. But for the most part, these guests were like laser focused. What are your stories? What are you going to do? How are you going to get there? So that, you know, it becomes a kind of like, you know, uh, lock is the residue of design. Like a really, really good appearance is the residue of a lot of planning. Mm. From when you were there, who would you say were the guys who did it the best? You mentioned oh, um, you, you mentioned Steve. Yeah, Martin. yeah, yeah. Um, Jay was great. Um, darn it! Why am I forgetting his name now? Um, shoot, he's on. Uh, he's he he plays Larry David's buddy in Kirby Enthusiasm. Um, Richard Lewis. Richard Lewis. How can I forget his name? Richard Lewis was a god. <laughs> um, uh, Tom Hanks. Every time Tom Hanks came on, he was just gold. Um, Steve Martin was, was amazing. Martin Short. Short was amazing. I'm thinking people now. I'm trying to figure out like people who weren't comics who were just great. Charles Grodin. Um, huh? Charles Grodin. Grodin was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and then I was there in the Harvey Pekar era. Um, there were some of us who were big fans of American Splendor, and Steve O'Donnell gave a copy to, to Lori Leonard, and she looked at this guy, and the first, it's funny, there's a weird thing that happened. It happened with Harvey, it happened to a degree with Calvert DeForest, the guy who played Larry Bledel. Um, there's a, you, you want to have them on because they're real and genuine, and they're, they're just like, just, they're, they're just nuts. And they're great, right? You just, everything they do is funny. And then they get aware of the fact that they're on television. And, and with Harvey, it just got annoying. 
right? He's just like, okay, I think the third chin is on. It's just like, oh, Jesus. Now this is just the same. Now he's doing an act. And now he's, you know, um, with with uh, Larry Bud Melman with Calvert, um, it was great because he, he, even when he tried to get better, <laughs> it just, it just, it wasn't. It got worse. <laughs> yeah. You were there with the Crispin Glover incident. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so to tell you the truth, like, like it, it, it's a really good example of preparation. Um, Sorry. Hi there. <laughs> um, Sorry. Sorry. My daughter just came home from school. Nice. Um, so and, yeah, so uh, you know, everybody was everybody was aware of like the Andy Kaufman stuff in the first year or two of the show. And so Crispin Glover decided, I'm going to do an Andy Kaufman thing, forgetting that Andy Kaufman would call Dave before every one of his appearances. Nobody else knew, but Andy would call Dave and go, okay, I'm going to do this. The wrestler's going to be on. I'm going to throw a chair at him, blah, 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 blah. Right? We're going to do that, just to let you know. And Dave's like, great, got it. Nobody else knew. Nobody, nobody knew about Crispin Glover. So he does this thing, he gets up, and he decides to do a karate kick that comes within inches of Dave's face. And Dave stands up, and uh, Hal cuts, and uh, Dave walks out, and, and Robert Morton, the executive producer, walks up to Kristen Glover, he goes, let's go, buddy. And uh, Glover goes, well, I gotta finish the bit. And he goes, oh, no, oh, no, we won't be finishing the bit. And uh, that was that. And on a nice one, you were there when Sonny and Cher uh, sang together for the last yeah. time. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, Cher did, Cher did something I've, I've been confounded by ever since. Um, her sister was also kind of her dresser, like helped her with her wardrobe and her makeup and everything. So, um, Cher, Sonny's already... I think if I remember correctly, no, she was the first guest, right. right? So Dave's getting ready to introduce her and backstage there's a long call mirror fully lit. So you can get a last look at yourself before you walk out onto the stage. And as he's saying her name, Cher takes her gum out of her mouth and puts it into her sister's palm. And I'm sitting there thinking, how does that happen? How does, it, how does it happen that that you that that you're the person who takes your gum out and puts it into somebody's palm, or you're the person who just matter of fact who puts their palm out and goes, "Go ahead, give me the gum." And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It could have been an act of it's it's an act of, of maybe weird love and generosity. But but it was just I just watched it and went, "That's the oddest thing I've ever. One of the oddest things I've ever seen." <laughs> Well, if you want to hang around with Cher, you have to, you know, hold her gum. Yeah, there's a there's a price. Yeah. About so in 1990, you went to work for Norman Lear. Yeah. On a show he did called Sunday Dinner. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I have a theory about pop culture that it is um, kind of like the wheel of life, right? and you write it up and you write it down and 
people who have been all the way to the top, Gary Marshall, Norman, Steven Spielberg, people like that, when it starts to go around the other side, um, you got to have to accept the fact that your role is changing. And uh, it happens with people like me too, by the way, in a much, much less scale that you kind of go like, oh, I'm, you know, comedy writing's a young man's game, really a young man's game. Um, but uh, comedy writing's a young man's game. And if you're lucky, what you do is they hire you to supervise the team, to coach the team rather than be a player, right? In Norman's case, he really wanted to go back to creating sitcoms. And he wanted a sitcom that was very personal. It was really about his relationship with his new wife and his daughters. And um, uh, it was very personal. And I would say if he were to do that show now without a laugh track and one camera, it would be great. Doing that kind of personal comedy with uh, four cameras and an audience was really hard <laughs> because there were moments when you wanted the characters just to talk to each other about stuff and the dialogue was good and it was full of stuff but everybody's like where's the one-liners where's the this you know and so um it was a it was a rough it was a rough uh uh it was a rough go i learned so much you know you know if not not because it didn't work it wasn't learned from failures you know, there, like, like I said, there were guys from their show shows, there were people who had worked on uh, MASH, there were people who had worked on Three's Company, there were people who had worked with uh, uh, Norman on, on All in the Family and Maud and everything else. And then there was all these young playwrights and young comedy writers and things, you know, and they pushed this all together. Um, and it was, that was exciting. That was exciting just to hang around with those people. Um, but yeah, and then, and then we developed a couple of other things that were fun to do, but but it was kind of like it, it wasn't going to happen. And, and then you know Norman is, is you know wildly prolific. You know brought back one day at a time and remade it. And and uh, that format, weirdly enough, right, is it kind of come back. People are just like, oh wait, how about if we do a three camera or four camera shoot again? Um, so so there, yeah, it was it was two incredibly great years, and and just just. Just, you know, things that he taught everybody in the room, but kind of like one thing is like writers tend to be in their heads, right? And they're writing dialogue and they're writing up the characters and Norman would constantly say, what is the audience seeing? What are they looking at? What information are you giving them right now that they need to know to get from point A to point B? And that's how, you know, you, you know, and that the jokes come on top of that, but the audience always needs to know where they are on the map. You know, again, it's like user experience, uh, user interface design, but, but it's, um, he was so smart about that. Yeah, but I've had people on who said that I went to Norman Lear University, I went to James L. Brooks University, or I went to Gary Marshall University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Couple people. Yeah, say probably you scratch the surface of like people in TV. Then the next one down the line, maybe the next generation, 
it's I worked at MTV Networks. So MTV Networks was MTV Networks and even early Fox TV, the Fox Network, um, became this breeding ground for for people who were going to kind of remake the the, the media. So did you have anything to do with either the powers that be or 704 Hauser Street, the other Norman Lear shows? No. Okay. No. All right, so you went to In Living Color. Yeah. And did you submit script sketches? Did they ask for you? That um two two people that I had worked with left to go to Seinfeld. And uh, 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 Tam- Tamara Rowlett was the executive producer, and, and she said, "Who should we hire?" Um, they named they named me, um, and I walked in. I had an interview. I had one interview with Keenan and Tamara, uh, and I think I got the job. And so we were we were talking in Keenan's office. It was on the Fox lot on Milton. And I looked outside, and there were four uh, uh, really disheveled workmen sitting on a curb uh, drinking beer. And one of them had like a long beard. They they looked like kind of like hippies who were working construction. And and I said something. This isn't even a good joke. But like, oh, geez, the Doobie Brothers are back. And Keenan turned around, and it was kind of just right for those four guys. And, and I think that's why I got hired. <laughs> so if you had just said ZZ Top, then you wouldn't have gotten the job. Yeah. No, was, the beard wasn't that long. I, oh. sure, I could have prefaced it. Um, yeah. So it was more of a Michael McDonald beard. It was more of a Michael McDonald beard. The, the sideburns and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Nicely done. Yes. <laughs> so... And so you, that was that was you know, that was a really interesting. It was a weird. It was interesting to begin with. We were all in this building uh, on Milton on Milton Avenue in Hollywood Boulevard, and the windows didn't open on our floor. The windows didn't open in the building. It's one of those buildings that was designed whenever, and it just didn't have the windows didn't open, and. Everybody had to work like 18 hours a day, and the the, the, the building just smelled horrible because um, it smelled like old food and stuff. And then uh, uh, the way that they did the show is they filmed three weeks of shows, three weeks of material every two weeks, and you, you, so that the packet was was 120 pages long. For the table read, the table read took four hours, you know, and and there was this exhausting quality, just just churning stuff out. It it, it really did feel just it was the most um, manufacturing like environment I've ever been in, um, and I can just remember just like just you know you go in, you sit down at your desk, you just start typing <laughs> you just keep working um and uh it was it was uh it was hard it was cool and how long when they would shoot would the audience be there so the audience um 
I mean, wow, you, you've put your finger on the issue. So what they did at the beginning, they were trying to just tape everything in order. Right. Um, but they, you know, they stopped and started and it would be, you know, the audience would come in at seven and it would be 10 at night and they were still like, but only halfway through. So what they ended up doing, and it was interesting, they did every sketch boom, straight through in front of the audience one time, which was great. So they, you, you've got, you know, three weeks of shows and you've got 15 sketches and you're done in about three hours. But it's been bam, 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 bam. Then they would leave because you had all the laughs you needed, and and we would do all the reshoots and retakes, and we were there till two or three in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then so much of the show was just made in editing. It was, yeah. Did you? create any, any i have no idea if that's interesting to anybody it's interesting um, okay did you create any characters that were um, that people picked up on uh no uh actually no there was there was one yeah um there was a there was a my friend matt rickline who had worked on leatherman as well created uh that jamaican family hey mon um, huh hey mon hey mon and when i got there i created the korean family that opened right. the stand next to the jamaican family and uh and they were much harder working <laughs> yeah they were a good counter um so i did that what what i really loved the, the one thing i loved doing was writing for uh, uh men in film um, be, and partly because, um, uh, yeah, um, Damon and David Allen Greer, if, if, if they were great with the script, they stayed to the script as it was working. And, uh, I, I really loved working for the writing for the two of them. It was really fun. Yeah. That was probably one of the most, uh, some of the most famous characters. Did you write a lot for yeah. Jim Carrey? I did not. There were two guys, uh, Fax Barr and Adam Small, who did a lot of writing for Jim. The way you, the way they wrote for Jim was Jim came in like the Tasmanian devil, um, <laughs> just whirled around their office for an hour. They pretty much just wrote down whatever the fuck was coming out of his mouth, and then they would spend two days trying to shape it into a sketch. And they did great with it, right? Fire Marshal Bill and everything else. But it was it was like you just go for the Jim Carrey ride. You were there for the halftime show during the Super Bowl. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the great. I, I do not understand why the fuck people still don't do that. Mm. Um, because it, first thing, brilliant idea. I don't know. I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was Keenan's idea. Um. And uh, it was so much fun, you know. I, I, you know, think about this: like we were doing the show that was pre-taped and edited, and, and you know, lived in a can, and so we were going to do something live, right? And it was just great. 
It was really fun. And they did a men in film, if I remember correctly. They did a men in film. They did a uh, homeboy shopping network. Um, I think they also, I think David Allen Greer did that character, the principal in the hallway. Mr. McAfee, yeah. yes. Yeah, Mr. McAfee, yeah. My brain is stored with so much endless, uh, mindless You're information. You're good. Yeah. You're good. Thank yeah. You. I have an old man in the back of my head who will get the information eventually. <laughs> but he's like, don't rush me. <laughs> I'll have it for you tomorrow in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> you did, wrote an episode of Night Court, which is... Uh, yeah. Jeez, you've done your homework. Well, this is funny. Is This is one I always remembered... But I didn't realize it was from the last season. Night Court's my all-time favorite sitcom. And uh-huh. I, I've talked to 10 writers from Night Court. That's, besides Siren Law, that's my other show that I got a lot of people to talk about. And it's the guy who writes, like, a check to New York City for the Brooklyn Bridge. I forgot how much it was. Uh-huh. And since the city cashed it, the judge decided that technically he owns the Brooklyn Bridge. And I remember watching it when I was 14 years old, and I'm like, I wonder if I sent a check to, for the Brooklyn Bridge, and if the city cashed it, uh, would it actually be mine? I almost, there's the only time I ever th- saw something on TV and almost did it, but I, I didn't. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. the guys who ran that show are ex-National Lampoon guys. Yeah, Stu and, and Chris Kloos. Yeah, and they were really nice. Like, I was, I was out there, and... Uh, I had, I think I had dinner with them one night and we were just hanging out and they said, maybe hey, we've got an idea for night court. And I think it was, yeah, just off the top of my head, I said, I think my original idea was somebody had sold somebody the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and then they said, well, what if somebody sent the check in and got cast? That was their idea. Like, oh, wait a minute. He actually owns the Brooklyn Because, because the first one, the first idea does, gives you an act one, but doesn't give you three acts. The, 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 their idea gives you three acts. So, so, um, and then I just went off and did it. Um, and uh, they were they were very generous. And I think you know, again, if I hadn't done that, um, so I if I hadn't done that, now I kind of jump ahead. And unfortunately, I have to go in like fifteen minutes. Okay, no problem. Yeah, I want to talk about Cheers. Then, well, so I'll, I'll make the segue for you. Um, so if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have actual sitcom experience. And because um, because Norman, well, anyway, yeah, there's an episode of Cheers, by the way, which, that I wrote called Sunday Dinner that everybody laughed about it because of my experience. Um, I wrote a spec script uh, to get because my agent said, look, I can, I you know, you, you, we, we want to get you to the next level and uh i knew everybody was writing spec scripts for shows that already existed and so i decided i would write a script for this it brings the whole conversation full circle the dick van dyke show as if it had never gone off the air okay i was wondering why people don't do that so it was the dick van dyke show 20 years later 25 years later um uh uh dick and Sally and and uh, more answered them. A buddy are bitter as fuck. Um, they are freelancers because Alan moved. Alan Brady moved the show to L.A. years ago. Um, uh, uh, Laura disappeared for a number of years and had been living in Minneapolis. 
<laughs> under an assumed name. Um, and and they were just like trying to fucking hold on to their lives. They were old and just trying to fucking hold on to their lives. And uh, then the comedy was Richie shows up and is engaged to uh, uh, one of the glamorous ladies of wrestling. <laughs> and so that was it. That was it. And, and Rob Long at Cheers uh, uh, read it and called my agent and just said, can this, I, I think the question, and I met, you know, I, I've known Rob for years now, and he kind of was like, can this guy do this again? <laughs> like, like, this is really funny. Can he, can he do this? <laughs> and so uh, that was that. And I went to Cheers, which was, you know, the, the secret for Cheers, and we, we, we kind of talked about MTM, right? Maritime Mer- One Productions and Grant Tinker, and they hired playwrights. And, and it was, and they had playwrights and they hired Jim Brooks. And Jim Brooks, uh, or excuse me, Jim Burroughs. Excuse me, well, Jim Brooks was at MTM, but Jim Burroughs, um, he understood because his father was a, was a Broadway, one of the great Broadway uh, uh, playwrights and, and book writers for musicals. Um, and he understood a play and he understood what it made it tick and, and what would keep an audience happy. And so on Cheers, A, you know, the difference between television and movies and the theater is in the theater, what the playwright writes is, um, is really important. <laughs> and they try and stick to it. And if they can't figure it out, they ask the playwright, what did you mean? And uh, on Cheers, that's the way they treated the script. Like, hey, this joke isn't working. What were you trying to do here? Instead of saying, yeah, I got another idea. Let me improvise. And so that was great. And then Burroughs was able to direct it in such a way that, you know, when we shot on Thursday nights, um, they did it once. And they did it beautifully. And they did it for an audience. And the audience loved it. And then they, because it was literally 45 minutes after the audience arrived, they say, you want to stick around, we're going to do some retakes. Um, and then the one thing that the trick that Burroughs was able to do, and I, I was just in, in awe of this. Um, so he had spent all of his week working with the actors and setting the cameras and knowing exactly what he had told each of the cameramen to do, blah, blah, blah. Right? And he could just listen to the performance and know what was going on. And you can see why every pilot in, in, in Los Angeles wanted him to direct it because he just, and he had an uncanny eye for just, you know, visual style and pacing and you think about it, there's Cheers and there's, there's, there's uh, Frasier and then there's, there's, you know, Friends, which he, you know, kind of created the look and feel of. So he's incredible. That was, that was amazing. And the writing of it. And then the other, the last, piece of that is, is, is always there in the last season. And uh, uh, all of the original writers, the Charles brothers, Steinkellers, uh, uh, Steinkellers, Stein um, David, um, oh God, I don't know if you his name. Isaacs? David Isaacs and Ken Levine came back. Uh, and like, all these guys came back and they worked on the last three or four episodes. And all of us just kind of sat in the back, like, and just, you know, sat on the side of the room and just was like, oh, so that's how they, that's what they meant. That's what they were trying to do. 
Yeah. Yeah, I talked to Tom Leopold. I talked to Tom Leopold. He was there for the final year as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, two questions about Cheers. You wrote the episode The Last Picture Show when they go to the drive-in. Yeah. And, and there's a joke about the, an actress who was in Godzilla, but she was only in the first half of the Godzilla franchise and then left. And then I think Woody says, well, why would somebody who was in a, a popular series leave halfway through? Yep. So you wrote that into the script. Yeah. Yeah. And it must have killed yeah. There's a Shelley Long reference. Yes. Right. It's great. The audience had like a knowing, like you could just tell like they got it and they were like really happy about it. Yeah. And did you go to the Tonight Show with Jay Leno that night when the last episode aired? Ah, I was in Boston. So you were there and, uh, and they all got... I was, I was there, but so I was friendly and still am with, with George Wendt. George Wendt's mother and my mother went to high school together. Mm. And uh, so George says, you know, hey, we're going up. You know, what you should come up. Like, it'll be fun. Um, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of drinking. Yeah. Um, this, was, this was the most poorly produced, one of the most poorly produced hours of television. It ranks with... I don't know if you ever, if you can ever find this, the Saturday Night Live episode that they did in New Orleans. Those two are just like, oh, here's what happens if people say, I'll just get drunk and it'll be fun. Yeah, but at least least, uh, Saturday Night Live had, um, what's his name, Randy Newman in a concert hall that they could always cut to just in case. Yeah, yeah. Um, This was just... And like, who can blame them? I mean, it, partly, it, it, like, I, I, you know, you look at it and you just go, what were you thinking? You know, why didn't you just say, well, why didn't you just pre-tape something? Yeah. <laughs> like, what were you thinking? Because clearly, you know, this was for, for many of them, you know, just the emotional high point of their, one of the emotional high points of their lives. Yeah. But it had to be fun to be there. It All was right. crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. And Terrific. Thank you, Ian. I really, really appreciate it. This was fun. Thank All you. Right. Thanks. All right. All right. Take care.